text for this morning's sermon is Luke 20, verses 19 through 40. Luke 20, 19 through 40. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies, who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers... The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equals to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he, call, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Uh, Father, as we see Christ in the process of trying to be trapped by the authorities of His day. Lord, we see His wisdom. We, we see His glory as He knows how to respond being truth embodied. Father, I pray that we would submit ourselves to Christ that we would realize that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there's no way to You apart from Him. God, I ask that You would help us now, that You would give us, that You would align our priorities rightly, 
in light of this text. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have an Apple Watch here. And uh, the technology in this little watch is pretty incredible. Uh, One of the things that can do is keep your heart rate. Uh, At the end of a day, you can look at your heart rate throughout the day, like on a graph, and uh, you can see different uh, spikes, or maybe if you work out in the morning, you'll see it spike up, and then you might see it go down uh, in the afternoon as you doze off after lunch. And uh, it's interesting sometimes to look at this. Uh, last spring, I went turkey hunting with a friend in in uh, Sisseton. And over there, you start to get some pretty good hills. And about lunchtime, we decided to go into Sisseton and get a six-pack and a pound at Taco John's. And uh, we ate that. And as soon as we got back out hunting after lunch, uh, my friend shot a turkey. We thought he was dead. And when we walked up to him, he started to run up the hill. And so you can about imagine how this story goes. We're chasing the turkey. I find out real quick that I'm not in good shape at all. (laughs) By the time we're to the top of the hill, I think I'm dying of a heart attack. And and uh, my lunch did not stay where it was supposed to. And at the end of that day, before I went to bed, I thought, you know what? I'm going to look at that little graph. And it was my heart rate was maxing out at the top of the graph. <laughs> and uh, also on Sunday afternoon sometimes, as the Vikings always seemed to fail me, I'll see my heart rate go up, and then I wonder, why Why do I put myself through that torture? But the question I have for you is this. If there was a device that could calculate where your heart rate was over the past, let's say, year and a half, with all that's gone on in the last year and a half, with the election last uh, November uh, 4th, and it could calculate kind of your thoughts, what your heart is passionate about, what makes you upset, what gets you going, I wonder what you would see on that graph. How has your heart handled political unrest in our country. Where was your heart this past year and a half? Where was your anchor, the the song we sang, that Christ is our anchor in heaven, anchor secure in the midst of a storm? And I think if we're honest... We might not be so proud of what that little graph of our heart might show us in terms of where our hope was as things got 
difficult, but this has always been hard for mankind. There's always been political unrest to some sorts in every society, in every place, and at all times. This morning we have a text before us, and we're going to only take to verse 26. I know I have to verse 40 in the bulletin, but we're, we're only going to take to verse 26 today, this question of whether or not they shall, should pay the poll tax to Caesar. And we're, before we jump into that, though, I want to help you get into the context of what it would have been like. This question comes in a charged environment. And in order to understand that, you know, in our day, uh, we have Republicans and we have Democrats, and then we have crazy Democrats and we have crazy Republicans, uh, both willing to get violent on both sides of the spectrum and other other things in between. And we have names for these different sects of political views. Well, it was no different in Judaism of Jesus's day. There were four main sects. And the first one was that, that I want to uh, talk about is the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees had the most power and they had the most wealth. They were in charge of running the temple. All right? Their fundamental authority, their fundamental identity was connected to the temple in Jerusalem. They made up the majority of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is kind of like a 70-member uh, Supreme Court of sorts made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees usually uh, had the majority and they always had the high priests in Christ's day. Ananias and Caiaphas were both Sadducees. They had the power. They had the political power. They had the wealth. Ritual purity in the temple was their main priority, not because their hearts were good, but because the temple is where they gained their status and their wealth. They worked closely with Rome, and because of that, Rome trusted them with authority. That's why they had wealth. They were given the privilege in the society. They were conservative theologically in one sense. They believed that the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, were, were the written word of God and that it was authoritative and it must be interpreted literally. Unlike the Pharisees that argued that the oral rabbinic law was on par with Scripture. So where the Pharisees accepted the whole Testament and then created their own oral law and held them, uh, sometimes the oral law, above the Scripture, the Sadducees were conservative in that they only took the first five books and they said to the Pharisees, if I don't see it in there, then I'm not going to believe it. 
Now, the Sadducees didn't interpret the, those five books correctly, obviously. Uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in the supernatural things like angels and demons and heaven or hell. And so they were always at odds with the Pharisees within Judaism. They were not friends. They had to work together. They both had members in the Sanhedrin. But they had theological odds that weren't even close to each other. In a sense, the Sadducees would have bought the book, Your Best Life Now, because they didn't believe in life after dead. They believed that your soul was within your body, and when your body's gone, your soul is gone. So the Sadducees, with a theology like that, were obviously controlled fundamentally by wealth and power and status within their community. They were relatively uninterested in Jesus' ministry until they saw how it might affect them politically and financially. Unlike the Pharisees, which always seem to be butting heads with Christ. Now, when we look at this text this morning, you got to remember Christ is just cleansed the temple that the Sadducees are in charge of, that the high priest is in charge of. And so they have great interest in ridding themselves of Christ. You need to understand the political environment that this question comes in. It's also important to realize that the Sadducees were very unpopular among the people. They had the wealth, they had the status, they were friends with Rome. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were very popular among the people. The Pharisees didn't have the type of wealth that the Sadducees had. They weren't to that level, but what they had was popularity among the people. They were known fundamentally as rabbis or teachers that studied the Old Testament and taught the oral law, man-made traditions. Uh, they were, uh, as I've already said, much more popular among the people. The crowds looked up to them. Uh, you remember the, when Jesus healed the blind man and the authorities came to the parents and said, tell us what happened. And, and what the scripture tells us is the parents were afraid to say that Christ healed them for fear that they would be thrown out of the synagogues. Now, while the Sadducees ran the temple, the Pharisees ran the synagogues. They were scattered throughout Judea. And to have a Pharisee reject you might mean that you'd be thrown out of the synagogue and you would lose this spiritual status. They looked up to the Pharisees as they were the ones that were truly spiritual. They weren't as political as the Sadducees were. They in a sense, weren't in cahoots with Rome as much. Uh, they were 
were supernaturalists. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels and demons and heaven and hell. So they were contrary to the Sadducees in that sense. And uh, they were the ones that we see throughout the Gospels that bump into Jesus, that were most irritated with Christ. They were the ones that most often got Christ's harsh words and, and, and rebukes as he revealed to them that uh, not only their theology was wrong, one of Jesus' favorite things to say to the scribes and Pharisees is, have you never read? Which would have been one of the most offensive things because they've read more than anyone else. And yet they didn't understand the scriptures. And then you had another Jewish sect called the Zealots. They were the revolutionaries. They wanted to overthrow Rome as they saw the land of Israel as being only uh, for the Jews and that it was their rightful land and it was God's land. And so they hated any tax that they would have to pay for some intruder into that land that would try to take authority over them. Uh, they were known to hide daggers within their clothing. At opportune times, they would pull the daggers out and kill Roman soldiers. They would try to lead rebellions against Rome. This happened in 6 uh, uh, AD, 6 and 7 AD. It ultimately, the zealots were the ones that led the rebellion in 66 through 70 when Jerusalem ultimately was overthrown. So they were the revolutionaries. They were the ones saying, let's not put up with this uh, fellow Jews. Let's become violent and overthrow uh, and fight Rome. Uh, Josephus, a uh, uh, church historian, uh, tells us that they were in agreement with most of the, th the Pharisaic notions, uh, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their own ruler. So the zealots said, liberty above all things. So we line up with the Pharisees doctrine-wise, but ultimately liberty. We will, we will fight to the death to get rid of Rome. Those are the zealots. And the fourth sect that you don't hear of much, partly because of what they did, is the Essenes. They were a sect that retreated from society into desolate places to pray and study and prepare themselves for the Messiah's return. They would ritually uh, take baths and cleanse themselves, thinking any day the Messiah could come. And this is where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, was from one of these uh, sects, uh, uh, the scenes. And the only other group I want to talk about, because you hear them named a lot, is the scribes. The scribes in ancient Israel were learned men whose business was to study the law and transcribe it and to write commentaries on it. The scribes took their jobs of preserving Scripture very seriously. 
they would copy and recopy the Bible meticulously, even counting letters and spaces to ensure that each copy was correct. Uh, And Matt Slick says, we can thank the Jewish scribes for preserving the Old Testament portion of our scriptures. So they had a close connection with the Pharisees. Uh, we, we see them come onto the pages of scripture like this, Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which would have just been shocking to them. So these are the political dynamics that this question comes in. We're not unique in the sense that there's political unrest, there's debates, and there's arguments. And there would have been, uh, even within the Pharisees, different Jewish rabbis that have different laws that they're arguing for. And so the crowds have been slowly transitioning to following Christ. The Pharisees, the one thing they had is the respect of the people. The people looked up to them. The people bowed down to them. They gave them greetings in the marketplace. They lived for their identity being built up to people bowing down before them. And now Jesus comes along and the crowds are continually following Christ. They're gaining popularity. The talk of the town is not about this rabbi or that rabbi, but about this other type of rabbi who preaches with authority, unlike our scribes. And so, tensions are high. There's uh, Many people threatened by Christ. And then you have Rome that holds the sword. And Rome Rome demands uh, loyalty. Rome demands confession that Caesar is Lord. Rome commands payment of taxes. And there's rumors that Christ is king. So to be Jesus is to not find a place in society that would say, yeah, he really represents what we're about. In fact, Jesus is challenging getting up on the toes of every political group of his day. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 20, I just want to show you where we've been a little bit. Luke 20 in verse 1. One day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel and the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Now, interesting thing has happened here. Enemies are united. The chief priests, which are what? Sadducees are united with the scribes that are likely Pharisees and with elders from the Sanhedrin 
And they're all saying Jesus has overstepped his authority. And then Jesus ties them in a knot when he says, let me ask you a question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from earth or from man? They couldn't answer that question. If they answered that question, they would be in trouble. If they said from heaven, Jesus would say, why didn't you believe John the Baptist? He pointed to me. If they say from earth, the crowds, they feared the crowds would kill them. And so Jesus intellectually (laughs) is further along than even the scribes and the elders and those in political power with political schemes. And so they come once again in verse 19. And this is our text for this morning. This is the word of God. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Now the parable Jesus just told against them was the parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard and how the tenants, when the owner of the vineyard sent to get his portion of the vineyard, He sends servants and they would kill the servants. And then finally he sends his son and they kill his son thinking now we can inherit the vineyard. And they realize that what Jesus is saying is that you guys have killed the prophets. Your fathers have killed those sent to them. And now the son of God's here and you're going to kill him because you want to take what is rightfully his. They want to keep control of the temple. They want the praise of the people, which is to be to God alone. So they watched him and sent spies. Yes, this is the political climate of Jesus's day. They had hired men to follow Jesus, to talk to Jesus, to calculated plans behind closed doors to figure out how to destroy Christ. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said so as to deliver him up to the authorities and the jurisdiction of the governor, which was Pilate of the time. So you Understand the plan. The chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes can't just come kill Jesus because the crowds would potentially riot and they would eventually, they could lose popularity or they could maybe even lose their lives. So what they need is they need to figure out how to get Jesus killed but not lose Uh, the support of the people. Does this sound like politics? Here's what we want to get done, but we got to keep our support. So we got to say these lies. We got to do this flattery in public. We got to be careful how we talk in public. We can't have the crowds turn on us, but really we have this agenda. Have you ever seen anything like that? Politics 101, don't say what you mean. 
but speak in a wise way to figure out how to get done what you want to get done. And so the plan is to get him in trouble with Rome so that Rome would kill him. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but teach truly the way of God. And the crowds would say, yeah, you see, they're, they're in support of Jesus. They're saying he's a good teacher. But what sin are they committing here? The sin of flattery. Saying the right, saying something to puff someone up with an ulterior selfish motive for yourself. And then they come with this carefully crafted question. You can just imagine behind closed doors when they finally come up with this plan and they run it through. What if he says this? What if he says that? How how, how are we going to navigate this? They got it figured out. He's trapped. There's no way out in their minds. And the question they have is, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And the prevailing view in Israel and among the people is no. It's blasphemy to give tribute to Caesar, to pay the poll tax. Now they got taxed on their property. They got taxed on the land they own. They got taxed uh, on their income. Those are normal types of taxes, but then this is a poll tax. This is a tax you pay because Caesar is over you, and this is where you show your praise and honor to Caesar. This is where you just admit that you're the captured ones and Caesar is your king. And so the Jews hated paying this tax. In fact, the denarii that had Caesar's uh, face on it, the, the, the conservative Jews, those who really wanted to be spiritual, would never be caught dead with that coin on their person. They didn't want to have anything to do with touching Caesar's face on that coin. And the plan goes like this. We're sure that Jesus is going to say that it's wrong to pay the poll tax. And he has to say that because they, they're slow to learn that Jesus isn't like them, because the crowds would quit following him and string him up if he says to pay it. Or, and if he says not to pay it, which is what they expect him to do, then they're going to run to Rome and say, Jesus is a revolutionary. He's trying to overthrow Caesar. He's leading a rebellion. And finally, they'll get Rome to kill Christ. So that's the plan. But in verse 23, we read, 
But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have. Now, in Mark's version, he says this, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Well, the first question on your notes is this. Do I put Jesus to the test? Jesus says to them, why do you test me? Why do you contrive in your heart a way to get around me? Why do you try to do away with my teaching and my clear words and my clear position of authority? How long are you going to do this? How many times are you going to put me to the test? And it's a valid question we should ask ourselves. Remember what Jesus said to the two on the road to Emmaus? Slow. The, he, he said they were slow of heart to believe all that was written. They were slow of heart to believe all that Jesus had taught. And my question is, is do you put Jesus to the test? Do you have a way of looking at his words and then saying, yeah, but really? Is that really true? And so he says to them, show me a denarius. Someone comes up with a coin and shows it to him. And he says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And a denarius in Jesus' day had the picture of Tiberius Caesar Augustus. On the one side of the coin, it had his face on it. And it says, to the divine Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. You can see why it bothered the Jews. Caesar was a god in their minds. Caesar demanded a tax to be paid to him, and they, he also demanded worship of him. And to make matters worse, on the other side of the coin is a picture of Caesar on a high priestly throne with the crown and diadems and priestly robes and is said, the great high priest. That's what was on the denarii. And so the question is given to Christ. And he says, who is on the coin? They said the obvious answer, Caesar. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now the word render is important. It translates a Greek form of the verb epitome, which refers to giving back of something that is owed. 
So render to Caesar what Caesar is owed. And there's a sense where Jesus is putting politics in his rightful place. I listened to a message by Alistair Begg, and he says it's interesting. He raises politics in some degree to the eyes of the people, but then he puts it in its proper priority. So he says, pay to Caesar what is owed him. He says, pay the tax. Give it to him. This would have been surprising. This is not the answer they were expecting. Whose face is on the coin? Caesar's face is on the coin. Who minted the coin? Caesar minted the coin. Who's king of that region at that time? Caesar is. And he says, pay to him what is owed him. And on that coin is a picture of Caesar. He's not leading a band of people that are not to pay their taxes. God in his providence has a ordained governmental authorities. That doesn't mean they're godly. That doesn't mean they do everything they're supposed to do. But even evil authority restrains evil better than no authority. Governments all across the world keep their regions more sane than if there was no law than if there was no rule and within God's plan, you can read Romans 13, he's the one that puts the leaders in place. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Render to the emperor what the emperor deserves, what he's owed, what God has given him in that position of Authority. Now, obviously, there's limits to that honor. We see that in Acts chapter 5. In verse 27, when they brought the disciples and they said to set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet here you fill Jer Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood against us, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So whenever the government tells you to do something God says not to do, or the government says you can't do something that God says you can do, not only can you, but God has to take priority in your life. Now that's a whole lot different than not liking or thinking it's wise what your political leaders are doing. Where your political leaders tell you you can't do something God tells you you must do, or you must do something God says you can't do, then you must, at that point, honor Christ as primary over local governments. Now here's the point. Give to Caesar's the things of Caesar's and give to God 
the things that are God's. Well, let's just think about this. Whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. We'll give him the coin. What's Genesis 1.26 say? God created man in what? His own image. The face of God is on your life. You realize that? You're created in the image of God, male and female. And your life is owed to God. Render to God the things that are God's. The leadership in Israel are hypocrites. Their hearts are far from God. They want power. They want money. They want control. They want wealth. And Jesus said, pay the tax to Caesar and give to God the things that are God's. And your heart and your life is God's. And we could spend a whole year talking about what it means to live your life and to give your life to God. Your life is owed to Him. As Christians, it's doubly owed to Him. He created everyone and He owns everyone. But not only that, He bought us as Christians with His precious blood. We've been doubly bought. And so... Christ shows that yes, politicians and leaders are ordained by God and governments are ordained in Scripture to be according to His providence and His uh, and, and according to His good will and wisdom. But it's secondary. It's not primary. It's secondary to Christ. Here's how Alistair Begg said it. When an individual, myself included, becomes preoccupied with the kingdoms of this world so as to divert me from evangelism, so as to preoccupy me, so as to send me to bed at night stinking mad, because everything has gone the wrong way as far as I am concerned, what I reveal to myself is that I have these things reversed. I've made what is primary the thing that is secondary, and I've taken the thing that's secondary and made it primary. And if you were to look at the graph of your life, what would it say? Is your anchor in Christ, is that your primary? When the world rages, can you remain steady because you're rooted in Christ? Or is way too much of your heart, way too much of your hope in kingdoms that will be here today and gone tomorrow? And in the name of the gospel, both sides today say everything's a gospel issue. Race, social justice. You have a group that says this is primary because it's a gospel issue. And then you have those over here saying let's overthrow the government because Christ has rule over the, the entire earth and politics is 
primary because it's gospel. And if everything has gospel implications, then what's there to protect the primary thing? Just look at Christ's life. What did he do? Look at Paul's life. What do we call him? We call him a pastor. We call him a missionary. We call him a church planner. When we call him a political strategist? No, we don't. But Paul partook, did he not, in politics? He understood politics. He used them to his advantage where it worked. When he's on trial before the Sanhedrin with Sadducees and Pharisees, what does he do? He says, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And guess what happens? The, the whole tribunal starts fighting with each other. And that was strategic. He did that on purpose. And so the question is, is do I have politics in its proper place? We are called to render, the charge of this message is to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to render to God your life. Here's why. Revelation 11.15 says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and forever. The reason why you don't need to go to bed with your heart going a million different places with sinful anger seething through your veins is because Christ will rule over all things. When he comes back, every enemy will be put under his foot. And here's the thing. We, we don't have time to go there, but in Luke chapter 6, verses 13 through uh, 16, we have the disciples listed. And within that list, you have Matthew, the tax collector. Now, I want you to think about this. Who does the tax collector work for? Rome. He works for Rome, and he gets rich off doing what? Ripping off Jewish people, collecting more than he's supposed to. And Jesus picks him, the Democrat, the big government guy. And then he picks Simon, the zealot, the guy who says, no government ever, only God's God should be over me. And the question is, is how can those two ever be unified on this earth? And the answer is only in the kingdom of Christ, only in Jesus Christ. But then the question that Alistair Begg asked 
after looking at that truth, that these two are both there, he says this, then what can separate them? What can separate those two except when the disciples of Christ put their political agendas as primary instead of secondary, and then what happens? They're now divided again. It doesn't mean politics doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have your opinions. You should. It doesn't mean you shouldn't participate in elections or, or, or seek political office because maybe you should. But it does mean it's secondary to the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. We might always disagree on what's most wise in civil rule. But there's no disagreement over who's king among Christians. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never realized their predicament, that they're a sinner in need of grace, that they've never realized the point of Jesus' ministry wasn't fundamentally to come and change the political landscape, but rather to take care of the biggest problem the sinner has, and that's his rebellion against God. So, Father, I pray that everyone here would know that Jesus Christ carried their sins to the cross, died under the wrath of his Father, satisfying justice, raising from the dead so that he can give the gift of perfect righteousness to anyone that will bow knee to Christ. Father, there were many Christians who when they were demanded to give worship to Caesar said that they couldn't and rather declared Christ as Lord. And Father, we know that many of those Christians got tore apart in the Roman Colosseum because their primary authority was to Christ alone. And so, Father, I pray that you would make us those sorts of Christians that would have wisdom, that we wouldn't be those who divide the brothers. We'd be those that, yes, have opinions, less, yes, have backbone, but know how to hold in priority all these things. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.